गुरुर् ब्रह्मा गुरुर्विष्णुर् गुरुदेवो महेश्वरा गुरु शक्यात पराब्रह्मा तस्मै श्री गुरवे नमः I bow to the Lord as my guru and I bow to all of you as an expression of that same Lord. I would like to read to you an interesting passage today. It's on my guru's personality as um, a human being and uh, it's an interesting subject. Did the master have any special traits or idiosyncrasies such as one that was recorded by Samuel Johnson's biographer Boswell, a habit of running the tip of his cane along the iron railings on a street, little things, in other words. In the master's case, I can recall nothing of the sort. I don't say he had no mannerisms. I am simply not aware that he had. I remember the, uh, the reaction of Roy Benn, a radio announcer from Australia, who visited Mount Washington during the early 1950s. I had said something to him about having seen the master once drumming his fingers on the arm of his chair. Roy responded, I wouldn't have thought the master could have had a nervous habit like that. Reflecting on the matter afterwards, I realized that the master hadn't been showing nervousness at all. He had simply been playing rhythmically with his fingers to the accompaniment of a piece of music that he was hearing in his head. He liked to play the Indian drums, or tablas especially, which her finger played. I once re and he once remarked that he li he'd like it if more Indian music were played during our church services. Sister Mary had talked him out of it, insisting that in America it wouldn't be understood. Dr. Lewis once told me nothing the master ever did was out of habit. His every action was conscious, a conscious and deliberate exercise of free will. This was, to me, an astonishing statement. Not even when tying his shoelaces, I inquired. Nothing, Dr. Lewis asseverated. Indeed, as I look back, I can recall no instance to indicate that Dr. Lewis might have been mistaken. Always the master seemed to be living completely in the moment, a moment, however, that existed in eternity. How was he in other ways as a person? What was his appearance? How did he comport himself? He seemed completely ageless. Physically, he was not tall, about five feet six, as I've stated before. He was well-built, uh, slightly stocky, very firm-looking. He left his hair grow long because his guru had said he liked it so. From a wish to meet other aspects of American taste, however, he was clean-shaven. His two most notable features were his eyes and his smile, both of which were extraordinarily expressive. His eyes were deeply calm and prof profoundly penetrating. Looking into them, one saw no glimmer of ego or of any personal feelings at all. I often thought of them as windows onto infinity. His hands and feet were small. His complexion was rather dark and full of vitality. He always sat, stood, and walked with a straight back. Sometimes in comportment, he appeared abstracted, but it was clear that his mind was actively occupied 
either with some deep inner experience or with reflections concerning a matter that was demanding his active attention. His powers of concentration were enormous. Whatever he did had his full focus. I never saw him vague, dull, or absent-minded. In this sense, though he was often deeply concentrated within, it was altogether different from the popular image of the absent-minded professor, one who looks about vaguely for his glasses, let us say, though they happen to be sitting on his nose. Indeed, the master had fun sometimes over that classical professorial image. There was a philosopher, he said, who flicked the ash of his cigarette down the back of his wife's dress. What are you doing? she cried indignantly. Oh, sorry, sorry, he replied, with a cloud-like smile. I thought you were the wall. Uh, because of his spontaneity, I could never predict with any certainty how he would respond in any situation. He had no set attitudes. Whatever he did was exactly right for the moment. One day I came to him, the bearer, I was sure of good tidings. Happily, I said, sir, we have a new man for the print shop. We'd been needing someone for there, there for months. Why do you tell me that, he replied, he demanded indignantly. First see if he has our spirit, then teach him how to deepen that spirit, only then see where he might be useful. Two others have already come and told me we have a candidate for the print shop. I never ask anyone first what he can do. I look at the spiritual side. It took me years to understand that the master viewed the organization itself only as a means to a higher individual consciousness. Otherwise, the organization as such had no meaning for him. He used to say firmly and with sincerity, I could walk away from this work right now and never look back. Believe me, sir, I replied, abashed by his rebuke about the new man. His spirit is my concern, too. I didn't say it, but it was certainly what I meant. Perhaps I should have reported first that he said to me, I'm glad to see that you all pray with such devotion. I had invited him to my meditation room, and together we had listened to recordings of Hindu devotional singing. He loved them. That is what I wanted to hear, said the master approvingly. I had yet to learn, however, to become more sensitive to the fact that he worked with intuitive insight above all. This young man proved on acquaintance to be only superficially devotional. The master was kind to him and sometimes even teased him a little in a friendly way. Privately, however, he told me that he wasn't really suitable for this path. Not long afterward, our, quote, new man for the print shop left. When intuition develops, the master said, you don't always know why you say and do things differently. But when you are in that divine flow, you are in tune with truth. Then everything goes as it should. They replied Thursday would be better. I didn't try to dissuade them, but as it happened on Thursday, it rained heavily. More and more as one lived with him, one learned to listen to even, nuance, even the nuances of his speech. For although he rarely insisted on anything, his mere hint, if one listened, was often a sufficient warning. Now, this is a very important and interesting saying here. Because all of us have a certain intuition of our own, and we need to learn to listen to that. 
he sort of helped to objectify it, crystallize it, so that you became aware. And of course, we, being undeveloped spiritually or just on the way toward whatever it is that we can achieve in this lifetime, we would be having some, but not all of the same intuition. Nonetheless, the way to develop that intuition is to use it. And so listen to your inner voice, but don't do like so many people do. Uh, they, they sort of presume on an intuition that they don't really have. They sort of, it's their imagination. Don't, don't be goofy. Don't be foolish. Use your common sense. Any intuition you have, always test it and make sure that it's true also. You have to apply common sense to intuition and then you'll be able to really understand. Now, however, to come back to this fascinating question of his personality, I couldn't, I probably could have written a book. I did write a book about him. This is another book about him, but about that aspect of his, his being. It's, it's a very interesting one. I don't know how much I could have written because I really did not see in him these qualities of personality that we, that we attribute to people that we know usually. We cannot say that he was more rational than devotional, than intuitive, that he, was, that he liked this or he liked that. He, um, for instance, yes, he would have liked more Indian music in the church services, but he also loved Indian uh, Western music. He loved the Blue Danube. He loved the Indian love call. He loved uh, a number of other Western pieces that were not necessarily reminders of the Indian culture. He was adaptable. That was one of the reasons he was such a success in America, that, <coughs> that uh, he didn't try to Indianize Americans, he tried to spiritualize them. And he was able to adjust, even coming in already with his character formed, if you want to put it that way, to adjust to the American way without becoming American. He was just always himself. And in that, he was able to see the qualities of the different, uh, as he said in his last speech, this was at the banquet in honor of Ambassador Vinay Arshen uh, from India. And he said that we should take the best of every country and put all together in this way mankind can grow. Now the wonderful thing about his personality, because he didn't have a personality in the normal sense, was that he wasn't committed to this way or that way. A good example is a skier. A skier, now you living in India, will not be particularly aware of what skiers do. I've seen a few films in which Indians are, mo are skiing, but most of India, except up in the Himalayas, doesn't have snow. Nonetheless, you can imagine it. You're going down a slope, and you suddenly come upon a little hill which they call a mogul in skier terminology. Now, if you've decided to take that hill, uh, to turn at that point, and suddenly this mogul comes and forces you to turn right, if you're already committed to turning left and you're leaning left, you'll fall. But if you're centered in yourself, then you can quickly decide whether you want to turn left or right. In this way, he was so centered in himself that he could adjust immediately to whatever realities were demanded of him. 
He could turn left or right. He could respond in one way or another. But this was a wonderful lesson. Very few people I've noticed in reading the lives of saints take their lives, their example, whatever they manifested of personality, and apply it to themselves. They always say, oh, this is why he was so great. But why do you think the gurus come if not to show us how to be in ourselves? And so the fact that he was that way shows that this is how we should always be too. How can we be that? Well, okay, the first thing is be non-attached. Don't commit yourself to anything, and that means not to be attached to anything. Don't be like somebody at a football game or a cricket match um, who is determined to win and, oh, please hit the ball right, run well, get past all these blockers, etc., etc. You have to be ready to not care what happens. Now, life might seem very boring if you don't care what the outcome is. <coughs> Actually, it's much less boring because you... you Enjoy the outcome, whatever it is. You don't get disappointed because the wrong team won. I've always thought a good question for somebody who's negative would be, instead of who won, who lost. But the fact is you don't really care one way or the other, and you can enjoy it either way. Um, to enjoy skill is more possible. For example, somebody may have been extremely skillful, yet lost the match because he'd made some little blunder. Well, enjoy the fact that he was skillful anyway. What I'm trying to say then is that don't be committed to any particular direction. Don't say, I have to do it this way. And you will find that in that, in that sense, you will be able to adjust to whatever direction you've got to go and go in that way only. This is true also in your, in your work in your um, relationships. There was, uh, there, when, you, when you meet people who don't react the way you think that they ought to react or don't react kindly or um, graciously, politely, you just sort of, uh, instead of getting upset with them for being the way they are, after all, this is a part of the play of life, let them be who they are. You can enjoy life a lot more like that than if you think that people have to be this way or this way. The variety in, in uh, the world, in human nature, is delightful if you allow it to be itself. It would be very boring if everybody were a streetcar conductor, wouldn't it? I think that it would be a dull profession, besides which, how could it be? There aren't that many streetcars. When people can decide that they want to do it their way, they're going to go in a million different ways and how much more interesting life is. But often you will find people saying, well, they didn't do this thing when I was a young man. Well, who cares? Isn't it good if they do things in new ways and different ways? The variety of this world, uh, I've sometimes said on this program, it's something my father brought to my attention years ago. He said, it's amazing. Well, he said, because he didn't really believe in God, but he said, it's amazing what nature can do with two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Somehow, with this very little variety, every face is different. Every tooth, no two thumbprints are exactly alike. 
God, which is how I prefer to think of it, expresses himself uniquely in every individual. Now, when you can be just your own self, don't imitate others. Don't say that I want to be like this or I want to be like that. You know, you can quickly tell, or it used to be more so than now with movies, television, and so on, but it used to be more so that you could quickly tell just about what country a person came from, just from the way he dressed, the way he spoke, the way he looked. And uh, we tend to attract from one another the attitudes, the mannerisms, the expressions, all these things. You can often tell where people come from. For example, somebody from Texas, you can see that uh, just because of a little smile uh, that he has, that he talks with a smile and therefore he talks with that kind of accent. I'm sure I've done that terribly. But uh, you, can, you can see from so many things, people adopt from one another their mannerisms, their attitudes, their tastes, their everything. Don't be like that. Run and realize that the, the answer to it all is to be your own self, to be true to who you are. And this you can only do if you are at peace with yourself. And let us sing you this song, Joy to You. Father, now that I wander with thee, flowers and fields feel alive with thy joy. All that I own to thee I give, and now I sing, and I love, I am free. Father, now that I dance in thy name, birds and animals share in my song, all my sorrows, all Sorrows, all my merriment, joy in music to set hearts up.